0: Good morning. This morning, I want to look at three uh, letters as we go through the um, scripture today. And I want to intercept some mail, which I think is a federal offense, but this is all hypothetical, so we're going to be okay with that. So the first one, I want you to watch this video. And it's a letter written to uh, a baby that is here for the very first day ever. There's a lot that the kids need to know. A letter to a
1: person on their first day here. Today, over 360,000 babies will be born, and you are one of them. Welcome, this is the world. It's a pretty cool place. There's lots to see, smell, there's corn dogs. Ah, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's just so much to do. Singing, and dancing. Oh, and laughing. <laughs> Laughing's the best. It's especially great when when you laugh milk comes out of your nose. But only if you just have milk. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just gross. Some days, gross things will happen. Some days, awesome things will happen. Some days, you'll get ice cream. And some days, you won't. Some days, your kite will fly high. Some days, it gets stuck in the tree. It's just how it is here. There's plenty of reasons to dance. You just got to look for them. Don't worry though. You won't be doing this alone. You're going to meet lots of people here. Some of them will be really nice and some won't be. It's not that they can't be. It's just maybe they're just having a bad day. Being a person is hard sometimes. You should give people high fives just for getting out of bed. Oh high fives. I forgot to explain that. How do I explain this? Um, It's kind of High fives are like hitting someone who is your friend, uh, that's really bad. Just treat everybody like it's their birthday, even if they don't deserve it, because we all mess up sometimes. The biggest mess up, not forgiving each other's mess ups. Maybe it'll be a teacher, maybe you will be president, maybe you will cure every disease ever. You might even see the Grand Canyon, swim in the ocean, oh this is so, so much, it's a lot. <laughs> Try this, take a breath. Isn't that amazing? It's called breathing. You're gonna do it a lot, but nobody knows exactly how much. So enjoy it. Pay attention. Take brain pictures. Because amazing things will happen every day. You're gonna do so much, but it's not about what you do. It's about who you are. And you, you're awesome. You're made that way. You're made from love, to be love, to spread love. Love is always louder, no matter what. Even if hate has a bullhorn, Love is louder, so let your life be loud. Let's shout to the world. Things can be better. It's okay about all the mess ups. We're not drunk. Sorry, I'm just keep bringing that up. I don't think I told you this yet. We're really glad you're here. We don't say that enough to each other here because, well, life gets busy. You're gonna be important and you're gonna do a lot. And you're gonna smell great, but don't get too busy. Remember to let everybody know You're glad you're here. You don't have to remember all this right now. You're going to need a pep talk sometimes, and that's okay. For now, remember this. You're awake.
0: You're awesome. Live like it. All right, tell the person next to you, I'm glad you're here. You're awesome. He said we would need a pep talk. So last week, uh, Pastor Jack launched our series that we're going to be talking about all month on Psalm 139. And we're studying the you that you don't know. And this psalm is written by David, and it is his response to God. David was hearing from the Lord, and he was responding to him in this psalm. And Ronald Allen, who's a theologian, says in the Old Testament, there are are three ways to classify the scripture. So the historical books, like the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible— and the the prophets, the major major and the minor prophets, those are best characterized by the word revelation. So all of the Bible is revelation, but these books, their primary function is to reveal, to have revelation of who God is. The wisdom books, and specifically Proverbs, are best characterized as reflection, reflection the contribution of these books has to do with the reflection of the writers of what has been revealed. So it's what the writers are thinking, the reflection on what the historical books have revealed. And the book of Psalms is best described as response. It's the response. So the scripture isn't just about watching God deal with people, but it's also watching people deal with God. It's seeing and hearing how men and women of God responded to thanksgiving and adoration and lament and praise as they walked through history. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Psalm 139. The entire psalm is David responding to God. It's as if David is writing a letter. This is the second letter that we're intercepting this morning in Psalm 139. It's as if David's writing, maybe it's a poem, maybe it's a worship song to God, whatever it is. But he's writing this, so you can follow along um, with me on your sermon notes or up. Up on the screen there, this is Psalm 139, 13 through 18. For you created my inmost being. David writes this to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them, were I to count them! They would outnumber the grains of the sand, and when I awake, I am still with you. I believe that God responded to David, and I believe that God responds to us, and he wants us to hear from him this morning, that he longs and he desires for us to to know him to understand him that he wants us to know who we are in very specific ways which is why we're taking the whole month to talk about the you that you don't know and he wants us to know he wants us to know who he is he wants us to know who he is on a very intimate and personal level so as i prepared for this message and as i studied Psalm 139 and i began to just think about and dream that what if god were to write us a letter today like what if you ran to your mailbox I don't really run anywhere anymore, but you know, like if your, your kid ran to the mailbox or, or your inbox, whatever you prefer, and you got to it, and in there, there was a letter from Jesus. What if that was in there? To you. Insert your name here. What if What if that this was in there? What would it say? I think it would come in a big envelope because God's big, and... That's my very deep theology this morning. (laughs) But I think it would come in a giant envelope, maybe even bigger than this. And I think it might say something like this. Dear you, insert your name there, "Dear, Dear Gary, Dear Deanna, Dear Jeeva, Dear Shrek, Dear Tara, Dear Nicole. Hi, how's your week going? I'm glad you got up and went to church today. I'm a big fan of this place. I have a lot to tell you this morning, but you'll have to listen close. So when your phone vibrates in your pocket or your mind drifts to the Steelers' home opener opener, or that leaky pipe in your basement, try to focus. This stuff is so important, it will change the way you do life together from this moment forward. Don't worry about that woman too much up there talking, just what you're hearing through her words about me but you can give her donuts after service if she does a good job. Okay, that was me, that was my ad-lib. Okay, I know that there's a lot about me that you don't understand, but trust me that I understand everything about you, even the you that you don't know. I know it feels like it will take a lifetime to figure out how to live for me, but that's just how I intended it. I want you to learn and grow and live and breathe and struggle and fail and win and do it all with me right next to you because I'm never very far away whether it feels like it or not. I'm infinite. I'm everywhere, all of the time. But today I want to write to you about three things about me. I want you to remember these three things and all of your coming and all of your going. And the first thing is this, I am your designer. So in Psalm 139, 13 through 15, it says that God knit us together together. In our mother's womb, that he knit us together. And then it mentions we're fearfully and wonderfully made. You've probably heard that before. Maybe you even have it on a a coffee mug or a blanket that someone knitted for you. And it talks about that it is, we are, uh, the frame that we have is not hidden from our creator. But what does that exactly mean? Well, I believe that here in the scripture, God takes credit for designing and creating our bodies, like our physical bodies and that he is the mastermind to knitting us together. So he's the one who said, okay, they're going to have two arms. I really think you should grow another one for every child you have. What do you think? Like just pops out. Um, So you have two arms. You have one nose. You have 10 toes. You have one gallbladder. Sometimes that has to come out. He knew that. Um, That God designed the flesh, the bone, and the blood that holds us together. And he talks about in the Scripture that we're not just human flesh, but we hold inside of us, this, this vessel of us, we hold inside of us a soul and a spirit. And our souls are made up of our mind, our intellect, the things we think, our will, which is our ability to make choices, and our emotions. Some of us have more than these than others, okay, my husband says. Um, our souls can choose whether to serve God or to be yielded to sin. Our souls hold our personality. They make us unique. They make us different from each other. Our soul will live forever. It is the thing inside of us that even when our body decides to die that our soul will live on forever. And then there's spirit, right? Our spirit. It's very closely tied to our soul. It it is the concoction of intuition and conscience and the ability to be in communion with our designer, with our God. And so Romans 8.10 says this, If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, your spirit gives life because of righteousness. So your spirit becomes alive. Your spirit awakens when Jesus enters it. So it's the part of you that most directly worships and prays to God. All of your communication with the supernatural comes from the spirit within you. Your body may reflect that communication with God, but it's your spirit that is having that communion with God. Out of all the creatures that God made, and he made everything, just one is made in the image of God. Just one. And that's humanity. And the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God. He represents God. Um, God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in the image of God. And he means he's going to make a creature similar to himself. You may not think that you're similar to God today, but by the very essence of creation, by the very essence of him designing you, you are. And the reason that he wants to make humanity in the image of of him is this, I really believe this, it's because he wants us to have context, he wants us to have understanding, he wants us to have the ability to see him and find him. I believe that God hoped that by making humanity a little bit like himself, that that would give us the best chance of engaging in him, that would give us the best chance of finding him, that would give us the best chance of loving him. So here are some things that we are like God. Um, Morally, we're like God because we have that inner sense of right and wrong. We're all born with that. Um, Even babies, even toddlers know when they're rebelling against their mothers. Believe me. All right? I know this firsthand. They know. They know that, that they're doing something wrong. We have that inside of us. Morally, also, we have an awareness of eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has put eternity in our hearts. That means whether we admit it or not, we all have the sense everywhere, not just in this building, not just in other churches in this area, but everywhere, every human being on planet Earth has this sense that there's something bigger out there, that this isn't all there is. And people spend decades trying to explain what that means, but that eternity is in their hearts. We are like God mentally. Mentally, we are like God because we can reason, we can think logically, we can learn. We can communicate with each other. We can create languages. Even in the most remote places in the world, people create a language to interact with one another. We are are creative like God. We We create art and literature and music and all of those things because God is creative, so we are like Him. Spiritually, we are like God because we are immortal. We will spend eternity somewhere. Heaven or hell, based on our decision to receive Christ and make him our personal savior in our life, we will exist forever once we were created. And spiritually, we can interact with the spiritual realm. We can pray and praise and hear and sense God. So we are like God in that way. Even relationally, we are like God because we find depth and meaning in community. We are made to rule over all of creation until Christ returns. And the scripture says that we will even judge the angels. And even physically, we are like God. Now, don't post your pictures from the gym, but we have eyes that can see and God can see. We have mouths that speak because God can speak. We have hands and we have feet to do God's work. Our bodies have been created as suitable instruments to live on this planet, conveniently modifying themselves to 98.6 degrees in every single dog day of winter. (laughs) That year will come. Shh, I didn't say it. So why? Why did our designer create us to be like him? What is his purpose? Why is he making it so we are like him and we can know him? What is our purpose to even exist on the planet? Well, I think the answer is found in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. It says this, God created us for his glory. God created us for his glory. He created us to bring glory to him. Tell that to the person next to you. He created us to bring glory to him. This is a big point. Glory to him. It's not complicated. It's a simple truth of the scripture. Every way he made us, every detail of humanity is all centered around bringing glory to God. Now, some might argue that it's kind of selfish or um, self-centered for God to seek glory for himself in creating man. Like, why did he create billions and billions of people just to bring glory to him? Because as humans, we understand that we're not supposed to seek glory for ourselves. We're supposed to you know, be humble and, and, and deflect that glory. But the major difference is this. When God takes glory for himself, from who is he robbing glory from? Is there anyone who deserves more glory than he does? He's the designer. He created all things. He designed all things. He made all things. He deserves the glory and he is worthy of it and he's the only one worthy of it. So man is always robbing glory from God when we are taking credit from the creator. So God says, so God writes in this letter, I'm your designer. This is where we left off. He says, my intention of designing each of you is to bring me glory. In John 10, my word says to live life abundantly. And what I mean by that is to enjoy it, to laugh, to sing, to have deep heart connections with each other, to do life together, to have rich experiences, to marvel at those eerie sunsets, to perfect that pumpkin spice latte. Because when you have joy and fullness in your life, you glorify me fullness of joy is found in knowing me and delighting in the excellence of my character and my creation and when you're near me your body your soul and your spirit won't be able to help but glorify me and when you glorify me and enjoy me i rejoice in you and as i said through my prophet zephaniah i will take great delight in you and rejoice over you as singing so he goes on and god continues he says all right next i want you to know this i am your shepherd i am your shepherd Okay, so I am forever losing things. One time, I left my wallet in a Kohl's shopping cart overnight. And as I retraced my steps, I came back to Kohl's, and it was in the cart, miraculously, untouched. Everything was in it. Glory to Jesus. That actually happened. Um, I lost my wedding band once for four years. (laughs) Um, Cecily found it in the bottom of the hairbrush drawer about a year ago. I can't make this stuff up, guys. I'm serious. This happens to me all the time. Joel got lost once for a minute. I couldn't even think of any stories of him getting lost because he never does anything. But I thought about when I was 12, once I went to the peninsula with my family, and um, it was one of those like really beautiful, hot days. It, it was packed. You know, Little kids were everywhere. Families had their beach umbrellas and picnic lunches and sandcastles and frisbees and that sunscreen smell. And I remember really vividly sitting on the beach that day as a fifth grader, and the lifeguards um, blowing their whistles, calling everyone out of the water. And then the lifeguard organized a chain of adults that um, grabbed each other's arms, and they uh, waded into the water, inch by inch, as far out of the shore as they could because a child had gone missing. And the fear was that maybe the, the little boy was caught under the water, that the chain of adults walked inch by inch because they just were hoping to find him. And they kept yelling out to each other, you know, nothing over here, nothing over here. And they just walked inch by inch. And I, I remember um, sitting on the blanket, um, holding my two little brothers tight and just thanking God silently that it wasn't them, but then feeling guilty that I had that thought. And they, they didn't find the little boy that day. I wish I wish I had a Good ending to that story. I never really heard if if he was in there or if he had wandered off or what actually happened. But I remember really vividly that after that moment, that the beach changed. That a lot of people went home. The people who did stay weren't throwing footballs anymore. They were just sitting down. People came onto the beach after that and they could sense that something was weird. Because someone was lost. And I didn't have this thought as a 12-year-old, but I have had it many times since I've thought about it that day, is that how many men and women and grandmas and grandpas and daughters and sons were lost on that beach that day and didn't even know it? How many felt that deep lostness and wished a chain of people would go searching for what made them feel so empty? How many of them knew that they needed a rescue team desperately like the one that that little boy Uh, That had formed for that little boy, but they they just wanted someone to come rescue them, someone to come help them figure out what has made them so lost. And how many of them, and, and how many of us this morning need to hear this response from David to God in Psalm 139, verse 16, when David says, All of my days are ordained for me, written in your book, even before one of them came to be. Jesus says, I'm your shepherd. You don't have to be lost anymore because all your days are ordained. All of them are written down. In Luke 15, Jesus tells this parable about lost sheep, and he's just saying over and over, all of your days are ordained. I know all of them. Even if you feel lost right now, you aren't because I am your shepherd. So he tells this parable about a lost sheep. You've probably heard it before. And he says this, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. So in that culture, a hundred sheep was actually pretty uh, a lot, a lot of prosperity there. If you had a hundred, most shepherds had just a few. But a hundred really signified a lot of sheep. And, And you have to ask yourself this question, what kind of shepherd would leave 99 for the one who has gone astray. Would that be logical? This is what my husband says to me. Is that rational, Nicole? Is that logical? Would that be good business? Why not just cut your losses and, and just go on caring for the rest? I mean, you have 99 left. That one sheep is probably the dumb one anyway, leaving their wallet in Cole's shopping carts. You know what I mean? Why is one, like why is one so important? And and I'm sure that the Pharisees asked God that question, Jesus that question in that moment. And I think the answer is this, our shepherd has a soft spot for the lost. Our shepherd has a soft spot for the lost. Because on and on in the scripture, he talks about different things that are lost. He talks about sheep that are lost, that communicates that God cares so much for us that he is active in seeking and rescuing and searching out lost people and lost sheep with a deep, deep love. It was interesting in this passage, um, the Pharisees thought to themselves, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm zoning out because I'm not lost. I know right where I am right now. I know everything there needs to know. And maybe this morning you may have, you may have kind of thought that too. You may have just decided, okay, I'm not lost. This part isn't about me. But the Pharisees had difficulty identifying with the lost sheep in this parable, and they never thought of themselves as that. But lostness, I believe, comes in many forms. Now, lostness does mean if you have no intimate relationship with God. Lostness is knowing about God, but never knowing God by name. Lostness means you have never felt the love of the Father. You never accepted his forgiveness or experienced his indwelling spirit. That is one form of lostness, and I'm so thankful that um, as a family of God this morning, we have less, less lost people because of the people that made decisions to follow Jesus this morning. But lostness also can mean that we know the shepherd, but we don't really want him to guide our lives anymore. Like, we just kind of want to make our own decisions. It's cramping my style a little bit that you want me to go do that because I kind of had this five-year plan. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to go in this direction. Lostness can mean um, there are so many alternatives that I don't even know what to pick. Maybe we have no clear conviction of where our life is headed and we simply feel lost and we've forgotten that all of our days are ordained. Lostness can happen when we're not feeling loved, when we don't feel special to anyone. Maybe um, we don't even love ourselves. It's that lost ache of a broken relationship or a, a misunderstanding or a silent treatment or an argument or a difference. But I think that the most tragic sense of lostness of all is not knowing we are lost. I think that the most tragic sense of lostness is the the, the sense that the Pharisees experienced. They were defensive, they were prideful, they were denying it, they were walking through life with this blazing blind spot of being completely, entirely lost, and they never even knew it. They thought that they had it all together. And the undeniable evidence of this kind of lostness is the lack of caring for those who are spiritually lost. When we become insensitive to the pain and the perplexity of people who need a Savior, when we have little else but criticism for the mess that people get into, then we are not found. <laughs> we are most in most need of a loving shepherd to find us and bring us back to life. Our shepherd doesn't just have a soft spot for the lost I think but he he goes after the lost in the scripture he he goes after them until he finds them and you can see in this parable that he leaves the 99 he he creates a search and rescue team for the one that is lost until he finds it He's the one leading he's the lifeguard on the beach Let's just chain up until we find the someone that is lost. We'll do everything that it takes. In fact, in Luke 15, the shepherd finds the lost sheep, and then he tenderly anoints his cuts and bruises. He doesn't scold him or be like, come on. He he, he tenderly anoints his cuts and bruises, and then he hoists them upon his shoulders, and the sheep relaxes on the strong muscles of the shepherd's back. And then he cries out from a distance, which usually means you're excited about something, corn dogs you know like you're yelling it out from a distance he says rejoice with me rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost and this is a picture of God himself carrying you and carrying me home and because God is a soft spot for the lost and he goes after the lost I know without a shadow of a doubt so should we so should we if you have been following Christ for a long time and, and you have lost maybe the excitement of being a Christian, maybe it feels like old news to you or you feel like you're just going through the motions, I want, I want you to hear me say this this morning, that joy is the outward expression of the inner experience of grace. That joy is the outward expression of the inner experience of grace. So maybe you have forgotten what it was like to be lost Maybe you forgot uh, what it's like to be carried home on the shoulders of your shepherd. And, and the way that you can begin to remember how that feels is by joining the search committee, is by joining the rescue team for the other sheep. So, so God writes to us in his letter. This is what he says. He says, I'm your shepherd. Listen close. He says, I'm your shepherd. I will do whatever it takes. I will go after you until I find you. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. I really believe I have a soft spot for the lost. I am consistently thinking about the one who is lost and scared and alone, and I will not give up on you. I have never given up on you. All your days were ordained before one of them came to be, and I will not give up on the ones you love that are lost. And if you want to know me more, if you want to be with me, then care for the lost. That's where you'll find me. Do life together with the lost. And when you spend time with lost sheep, that's where I'm going to be. I'll be searching and trying to rescue them, so come along with me. All right, so lastly, God writes this, I'm your father, I'm your father. So when we realize that God didn't create us because he needed us, or he wanted, him to work, he wanted us to work for him, or take care of the earth, or produce important things, that this indicates that we are just important to God, that's it, we're just important to him. There's no like strings attached. There's nothing extra about that. We are just important to God because he is our father. He is not just our master. So in Psalm 139, 17 through 18, David says this, God thinks about us all the time. So much so that the thoughts he has about us outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. In the scripture, I believe that that's where we see the heart of a father, not a master the master's trying to shoo people out of his mind that he works for, right? Don't raise your hand, but if you're a boss, right? You go home on the weekend, you don't want to think about those people. They're driving you crazy. But a father, a father thinks about their kids all the time. Romans 8.15 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The scripture is telling us that the Holy Spirit doesn't make you a slave, he makes you a son. And that Jesus isn't interested in your behavior, your checklist of your good deeds like Pastor talked about. He isn't keeping a chart of how great you've been this week or or, or how bad you've been or the good or the bad. He's just thinking about you all the time. He's just thinking about you all the time and how much he loves you and how much he wants to rescue you from your lostness and how much he wants to guide you and how, and how happy he is with the way that he designed you. Abba, Father, is interested in one thing and one thing only no hidden motives, no silent agendas, no trick questions. All Abba, Father, wants is your heart. Every day. That's all he wants. And he wants a relationship with you like a father has with a child, and he's after your heart. God doesn't just want to be your boss, he wants to be your boss, but he doesn't just want to be your boss. If you're an employee and you perform well and you do good things, your boss likes you. Maybe you get a promotion. Maybe you get a raise. But if you're bad, if you're a bad employee, your boss won't reward you. He probably won't give you the time you request off or bring in a birthday cake for you. Just everybody else in the office, right? But God, God wants to be your father. And whether a kid is good or bad, they still have a father, Whether a kid is good or bad, they still have a father. Nothing changes the lineage of the child based on their behavior. Nothing. God is your father before you ever obey him or before you ever disobey him. And I believe that God's love transforms a slave into a child. That the slave has a master, but a child has a father. And I think the way that you can gauge if you're living like God is your father and not your master is the motives of your heart, is the motives of your heart. So so here's the the difference between sons and slaves is this. The slave is driven by duty. I got to do these things. I got to do these things. I got to do these things. The son is driven by devotion. The slave is driven by duty. The son is driven by devotion. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So if you think God is your master, you're going to do things out of fear or pride. So, so, here's, okay, so here's an example. So fear motivates like this. I don't steal because God will get me. And he won't give me the things that I want. So I better not steal. Here's pride. Pride motivates like this. I don't steal because I'm a good person and I'm better than the people who steal. Right? That was like my gangster move. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when you're a son your motivation is this I don't steal because I love God so much I don't want to break his heart the slave is driven by duty but the son is driven by devotion and when you're a son you never try to leverage yourself with God you never say well God I did these six things so I'm gonna get this or I did all of this for you why aren't you awarding me this you do things that please God and serve others because you love him And you don't do things that the Father doesn't want you to do because you love him. Not because the church makes the rule, or the pastor says you shouldn't, or if you're in leadership, you shouldn't do this, or if you're this or that. It's nothing to do with that. It's because he's your father, and you want to love the things he loves, and you want to not love the things he doesn't love, and the things that break his heart, you want to break your heart, and and you want to go alongside him and, and go on that search and rescue mission with him. The Spirit does not enslave us. He does not compel or force us to do God's will as slaves of God. Rather, he appeals to us to submit voluntarily as sons who are adopted. Okay, so before I le- read the last part from the letter, um, the worship team is going to come up again. And I believe that God would add this to his letter. Would you stand up just for this last part of the letter? I believe that God would add this to his letter. God says, I am, I am your father. He says, I know full well that intimacy and control can't live in the same place. That intimacy and control cannot coexist in relationships. So that is why I designed you. That is why I chose to design you to give your souls free will. Because I could have made robots or people without choices, but I know that control and intimacy cannot live in the same place. So I'm going to let go of my control so that there can be closeness. I want you to be my son, not my slave. I want intimacy so much more than I want control. I want intimacy so much more than I want control. I think about you all the time, and I want to be your father. I am your designer. I am your shepherd. I am your father, and I am so much more than all of that. You do have a destiny because I designed you with a purpose. I go after you and I'll find you like a shepherd. I will lead you as your shepherd and you have a destiny because I am your father and you are my child. And I believe this morning God would say, I love you. Linda, I love you. Kat, I love you. Jerry, I love you. Steve, I love you. I want intimacy so much more than I want control. And so this morning as as we talked about in the very beginning of the scripture, there's, there's parts where it's revelation, there's parts where there's, there's um, uh, uh, I can't remember the second one, but it's you know right there. The revelation, there's parts that, that you want reflection, there it is. And there's parts that, that there's response. This morning we're going to respond to the letter. We're going to respond to the letter that I believe David wrote to God, that God's responding to us. We're going to respond this morning perhaps in a, in a letter that you would say to God, maybe a spoken letter, maybe you want to write it down, that's okay. Maybe you would want to sing it. Maybe you would want to um, just utter, utter words to God, but responding to him is what he wants us to do. And, and I believe that he would sign that letter, your good, good father. Your good, good Father. And so we're going to sing that this morning. You can start um, playing a little bit, Kate, and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to just sing this song. And I'm going to ask you that you, um, I'm going to ask you to respond to God this morning, to respond to God's letter to you. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, God, that um, you are our designer I thank you, God, that before you ever knew us, you knit, before we ever knew you, you knit us together in our mother's womb, God, that our frame was not hidden from you, that you knew all that was to come to be. I thank you, God, that you're our shepherd, that all of our days are ordained in your book, that you have sent a search and rescue team out for each of us and you're not gonna stop until you find us. And God, that you so desperately want us to join in with that because that's where we'll find you closest and deepest. And God, I thank you that you are our father and all you want is for us to be your children. God, you want our heart because when we give you our heart, you can change it. You can change all our motives. You can change the things in it that are broken. You can heal it and fix it. God, I thank you that you want intimacy so much more than control. And so God, this morning... We respond to you. God, we respond to you in whatever way that, that 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 you are asking us to. God, I God, I pray that if you're asking us to respond with our body, that we would physically move our body to the front of the of the altar, God, or physically move our body to our knees, or physically move our body to, to raise our hands. God, if you're asking us to respond with our spirit, as well as our body, God, that we would communicate with you, that we would pray and praise, that we would open our mouths, God, that we would look around and see what you see. God, I thank you that you so much want a relationship with us, that you will do anything. You will create all of creation to to praise you so that we get it. And God, I pray this morning that we get it. God, I pray for someone here today that just needs to hear that he's still chasing you. That the good shepherd will never give up. And then when he finds you, the father will just hold you close because he wants intimacy so much more than control. God, thank you for these men and women who are here this morning. They're going to respond to you. And it's in your name we pray. and i've heard a
2: thousand